This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm very excited to be here with you this morning. I've been looking forward to it all week, uh, not because I'm up here, but because it's just, uh, it's been a couple of those weeks, you know, where you just, uh, you need encouragement and spiritual nourishment and to be around the people of God that you love, so I'm happy to be here with you. Uh, There was a man who bragged in an assembly once to Abraham Lincoln that he was a self-made man. And Abraham Lincoln said to him, well, I'm glad to hear that. That relieves the Almighty of a fearful responsibility. And I imagine that man was humbled upon hearing those words from Lincoln. You know, there's another man who was also humbled. Only instead of by Lincoln, he was humbled by Jesus Christ so that he could be used. Please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 21, verses 15 through 17. And I want to read you what happened. Starting in verse 15, John 21. So when they had dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my lambs. He saith to him again the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? He saith unto him, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. He saith unto him, Feed my sheep. He saith unto him the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou knowest that I love thee. Jesus saith unto him, feed my sheep. I want to set the stage for you for what's going on in this passage. Peter had just denied Christ three times, despite telling Jesus he would not and could not ever do such a thing. Peter was discouraged by this failure, and John identifies some, but not all, of seven other disciples who, with Peter at their head, had returned to their old profession of fishing. And after Jesus' burial, these disciples were largely aimless. They were discouraged. Peter knew that Jesus' body had disappeared from the tomb, Yet due to discouragement, self-loathing, or just a general lack of spiritual perception, he was returning to his old life at this stage. And the other disciples were following his lead. Peter said in John 21, verse 3, Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. And they said unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. They're walking away from what Jesus had called them to do at this point. Now, some theologians have argued that with this statement I just read you, that Peter was backslidden. He'd given up on his relationship with Christ as a disciple, and he was embarking on his own path of self-determination. And then there's others that say that this might be reading too much into the text, and instead, Peter was no longer giving Christ priority in his life. There's a third group. That appealed to the fact that since he caught no fish, it was a sign that God would not bless him because he was backslidden. And then there's a final group. They go a little easier on Peter. 
And they suggest that he was just returning to his to living his old life, you know, earning a living, providing for his family, perhaps providing for those seven disciples with him as well. Whichever view one chooses to follow, Peter's spiritual state can safely be said to have affected those who followed him. When Peter made his announcement he was going fishing, the others were ready with little hesitation. They went out and they got into that boat. Then Jesus comes on the scene. And we know that he told them where to fish. A huge catch of fish miraculously appeared for them where no fish had been before. And once it became clear that it was Jesus they were dealing with, we see something else. The disciples at this time, they were either shirtless or they'd removed their outer garments uh, you know, so they could go about the business of fishing. And we're told that Peter, when he saw Jesus, he actually took the time before he jumps in the water to put on more clothes. He threw on his outer garment and he dove into the sea to meet the Lord. Now, according to Jewish custom, to offer someone an official greeting, it was a religious act. And to carry out any religious act, you had to be fully clothed. So when Peter reached for his coat before jumping into the water, he hadn't lost his mind. He knew who he was going to see, and he still loved the Lord, despite what he was doing. When they got to the shore, we see the Lord begin to minister unto them. He'd cooked them some broiled fish and toasted bread. It was a breakfast meal, and after they'd eaten, and after Jesus had reinforced his care for them, he turned his attention to one man in particular, Simon Peter. In this passage of scripture that I have up on, or I had up for the text, <clears throat> Jesus addresses Peter's three denials of him prior to his crucifixion. And while he asked Peter if he loved him three times, the words used for love are not the same. The first question asked by Peter is, do you love me more than these? The most likely meaning of this question is simply, do you love me more than these other disciples here love me? Earlier, if you'll recall, Peter had boasted of his superior love for Christ, suggesting that he loved Christ more than the other disciples did. You can find that in Matthew 26, 33 and Mark 14, 29. Peter's response here indicates that he had now reached a little bit of a higher level of spiritual maturity than he previously displayed. He simply says, you know that I love you. Peter completely avoids the apparent invitation to compare the superiority of his love. If he had boasted that he loved Christ more than the other disciples, he would have been guilty of another childish exaggeration. Hence, when Peter says he loves phileo, Christ, he's saying, I have affection for you. Peter realizes he failed the Lord in the face of exaggerations that he had made. Lord, I'll go to the cross with you even unto death. And he didn't do it. So he's honest when he says he only has shallow affection for Christ. So then Jesus, after that first response, gives Peter his first task. Tend my lambs. That word tend means keep on tending. Literally, Jesus meant keep on tending my little lambs, the new converts to the faith. Peter's first confession of honesty led to a restoration of his commission. And then in Jesus' second question, there are no more comparisons with others. 
He simply asked, do you love me? Peter's response to this second question, again, indicates his honesty. Normally, you might expect that he would upgrade that statement of love, but Peter knew his heart. And Peter, no doubt, knew the difference in the words being used to describe love here. In Jesus' first two questions, he uses the verb agapeo, meaning the deep, sacrificing love that has its source in God. In his responses, Peter uses the verb phileo, meaning brotherly affection. By comparison, phileo is the term for liking or being fond of someone, whereas agapeo is the term of deeper love. After earlier expressing his willingness to die for Christ, he saw his sinful heart having denied him, and he can honestly only express phileo. Now, the second command that Peter then received is shepherd my sheep. The word shepherd is the Greek word poimain. This is a higher level of responsibility. The word is from the same word we get our word pastor from. And Jesus is saying that based on Peter's response, he is now ready for a higher level of responsibility and leadership. And then the third time Jesus asked Peter if he loves him, he switches from the term for deeper love and he uses the word Peter had chosen. Peter's response again shows his new honesty and humility. This third question, though, it grieved Peter, as we see in verse 17. How grieved was he? Well, this term is the same used by John in 1621 to describe the sorrow of a woman giving birth. Just as childbirth seemingly takes a woman right up to the point of death, Jesus' third question causes Peter to die to self, as one scholar puts it. He responds, you know all things, you know that I love you. <clears throat> now, as a result of Peter's honesty, the Lord gives him his third task, tend my sheep. Now here the term for sheep is the usual word referring to mature sheep. So Jesus has progressively tested Peter's love. And based on Peter's answers, he's given him a larger responsibility each time. He teaches him that faithfulness in a small matter will lead to more responsibility. Peter is now commissioned to care for the younger converts to the faith, those who are a bit more mature than those, and finally, those Christians who are fully mature. So Peter's learned something about himself. He's been properly conditioned to lead the future church at this point. And scripture shows he did just that. What I want to examine this morning then is how did Peter feed the sheep? The answer we're looking for is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11. through 11. This is where the actual text for the lesson comes from. In this passage of scripture, Peter, addressing the church as a whole takes the lessons he learned from Jesus and gives us clear direction on how to bear fruit, not only as individual Christians, but as the church. Bear in mind that Peter wrote his second epistle somewhere between 64 and 67 AD. He probably wrote from Rome in the period of time before he was crucified upside down in 67 AD. And you'll recall that according to tradition, Peter, when learning he would be crucified, requested, he actually asked, to be hung upside down 
because he did not feel worthy to be crucified and put to death in the same manner as our Lord. Now, oftentimes Peter will look at our people will look at Peter's upside down crucifixion and they'll exclaim, "What faith! What humility!" And while they're correct in that, what I want to look at this morning is let us not forget that Peter was only able to have this faithful response first because he denied Christ. He had a failure. And second, the episode with Jesus where he was forced to acknowledge that all that bravado had not yielded fruit when it mattered. When Peter's death was near at hand, what was most important in the feeding of the church in his mind? That's what I want to look at. Here we have Peter telling the young, vibrant, on fire, first century church how to avoid a fall and actually bear fruit while not experiencing infighting, pride, and an immature faith. Essentially, Peter is giving the church fruit for thought. Now, as we examine 2 Peter 1, 5 through 11, there are a few things I want to call to your attention at the onset. First, in verses 5 through 7, there are listed seven things underlined up here, which will cause the church to be fruitful. Virtue, knowledge, temperance, Patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. Now in the Bible, that's seven things. In the Bible, the number seven represents completeness and achievement. If you've never heard of numerology before, it's just the study of the significance of numbers as they come out in the Bible. We're not talking about the uh, superstitious stuff. We're just talking about numbers in Hebrew had symbolism applied to them. Primarily, the number seven has its meaning because of the seven days of creation. God took seven days to complete his masterful work of the universe and to declare that it was all very good. So when Jewish teachers wanted to impress upon an audience the concept of a job completed, of a complete package, of a completed work or thought, they would oftentimes tie in seven points, seven commands, Seven proclamations, etc. So I believe that Peter's list of seven things here is of no coincidence. But the numerology does not stop there. In verse 9, we see three negative things that will result from not incorporating the seven aforementioned good things needed to bear fruit. We are told that failure to have those seven things will result in blindness, short-sightedness, and a forgetting of the sinful state from which we were all free. Three things, all reinforcing the same negative state of being that will result from failure to have the virtues listed in verses 5 through 7. In Hebrew poetry, when something is repeated, said twice, it is very important that we take notice of it. That's why it's said twice. When something's said three times, it's something called absolutely superlative. That is to say it is of the highest quality or degree. Think of the proclamation that God is holy, holy, holy. That's not just written that way because the Bible is outdated or the method of communication is weird. No, it's purposeful. It's repeated because it is of such great importance that it must be proclaimed three times. 
But why three? The number three in Hebrew is the word shalosh, meaning a three or a triad. The number three represents the harmony and oneness of the Trinity. God is three distinct persons in one Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are different, but they remain one. That's the Trinity. So to emphasize something in Scripture three times is to emphasize the completeness and unity of an idea. In our vernacular, we might say this is the full disclosure. Now, while it's often used to describe the Godhead, it is not only used for positive association. Sometimes it's used to express utterly complete evil as well. An example is Satan's counterfeit of the Holy Trinity, the evil Trinity. Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet described by John in Revelations chapter Revelation 12 and 13. So in 2 Peter, Peter, as a Jew, would understand the significance of these numbers. And he uses the concept of three to point out that we will not just be somewhat blind. We will not just be short-sighted, and we will not just be out of touch with our position as men, but we will become, become totally, utterly, completely devoid of any ability to discern, move, work, love, or even have a proper faith. We will be completely blinded. And remember that this passage we're looking at is addressed to the church. It's addressing how to prevent failure to bear fruit when it matters most, as Peter did when he denied Christ three times. Jesus took a man with phenomenal potential, Peter, and he worked out his kinks so that he could be useful, not blinded by hubris, loving, and bear fruit. And after he did this, Jesus told Peter to feed you and I, his sheep. But don't take my word for it. Look at what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, verses 10 through 11. I want to read from the Amplified Bible in this case, since it draws out the intended meaning very well. Therefore, believers, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. Be sure that your behavior reflects and confirms your relationship with God. For by doing these things, actively developing these virtues, you will never stumble in your spiritual growth and will live a life that leads others away from sin. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly provided to you. The word diligence in the Greek means bringing in all zeal or effort. The meaning is that we ought to make this a distinct focal point for ourselves. A definite object. We should apply it to ourselves as a thing to be accomplished. Because if we don't, we will complete, be completely useless as a church. We will not grow. We will fall. We will die out. You die when you don't eat. How did G uh, Peter feed the sheep as Jesus asked him to do? Take a moment to absorb this. Because the lesson that Peter is going to be giving us here is the very same lesson 
that Jesus taught him, fleshed out. It is the very same lesson Peter had to learn the hard way. But it doesn't have to be that hard for us. We have a job, and it extends beyond these walls. We have a purpose, and it encompasses more than our individual salvations. We have been chosen to do a great work and have been told that the harvest is plentiful, is ripe, is at its peak value, and what is needed is workers in the field. And it starts with what we are doing here in this body. There is a way we must view ourselves, each other, and the world. So let's touch on these seven things. The seven virtues needed for feed for the sheep. First of all, we have virtue. It says, add unto your faith virtue. Now keep this in mind. We are we have our initial faith, but then to make it grow, to make it useful to the kingdom, we add these seven things. First, virtue. This word means intrinsic excellence that is coupled with, and this, this has the idea of manly value, valor, which is worthy of praise. Think of a man in his prime. Manliness refers to that expected courage vigor, and energy that we see of young men in their prime. Peter is telling us to show the firmness and courage necessary to maintain the principles of our religion. Virtue requires great energy, boldness. It is the very essence of firmness, manliness, and independence from this world. And this isn't just for men. The idea is that men and women alike are to stand firm, to choose Christ and to stand for Him no matter what. And we do that as agents in a world that is not our home. And then you have knowledge. Add to virtue knowledge. It is the duty of every Christian to make the highest possible attainments in gaining knowledge. Speaking of young men in the prime of life, the Apostle Paul wrote the following to Timothy, a young man learning to lead and work for the Lord in 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. It is our duty to search out Scripture and gain knowledge of it. Not only do we need knowledge for the edification of the church, but we need it for the world. They're going to have questions too. 1 Peter 3.15 But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you, asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. What does it do when someone makes a claim and cannot tell you why they believe it and they cannot appeal to a source material or authority for it? As simple, it undermines it, doesn't it? We have a duty to gain knowledge. And gaining that knowledge will never stop. There will never come a day when we've collected all the knowledge there is. Or that the knowledge we've collected we will understand so well that we don't need to come back to it and look at it again. That will never happen. As a church, we should and must pray for and seek for knowledge. If we don't do this, or worse, if we seek knowledge to support a personal agenda or an ulterior motive that we have personally, 
then we will end with a false truth. That is scripture taken out of context, twisted to serve our own desires rather than the desire of God. Seek true knowledge and only seek it from scripture. No man. And to knowledge, add temperance. This word refers to the mastery over our evil inclinations and appetites. We simply cannot allow them to, to gain control over us. Sometimes, as with Peter, we fail in this simply because we choose to believe that we are somehow incapable of sin or that we've permanently overcome sin in this life or that we're incapable of certain types of sin that we see in others. Temperance can be tricky because we sometimes think that it should be possible for us to never sin at all. But yet the Bible clearly says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's 1 John 1 verse 8. You see, temperance does not imply the absence of sin, but rather the resistance of it. When someone tells you that we can live a life that never has sin in it because of our salvation in Christ, they are deeply confused and they are deeply dangerous to you and to themselves. The Bible is more abrupt. It says that they are liars. You will sin. The church will have to deal with sin in our body. The point is we resist it, we confront it, and we purge it to the maximum extent that we are able. And remember that grace is never a license to sin. In 1 Corinthians 6 verse 12, Paul says, All things are lawful unto me, but not all things are, expe are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. We'll be temperate. Moderation in all things, you might have heard. Obviously, it's not moderation in all things, but the idea is that we are steady. We cannot allow anything or anyone other than Christ to control us as the church. We've been set free, free to live holy, righteous lives, and we must strive together as a church to do just that if we intend to bear fruit in Christ's body. A tree that's planted beside still waters will grow and bear fruit, but a tree watered with the poison of sin will stop bearing fruit and die. You don't have to look very hard or very long to find congregations of churches that are dead and dying and disappearing. It doesn't have to happen to us, ever. But that's, and let's not pretend this is easy, this temperance thing. In Acts 24, verse 25, we see that Felix, when taught about righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment, he trembled. That's right, he believed enough to be scared. But he was unwilling to exercise temperance or self-control. He might have been unwilling because he saw the work that would be required to actually bear fruit as a temperate man. 1 Corinthians 9.25 And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. You know, a race is not something you just get up and do. A race, speaking as someone who runs now and again, is a matter of stamina, not speed. That confuses people who are new runners. Speed is always the byproduct of stamina that has been increased through much training 
and self-discipline through practice. <clears throat> this race that we're engaged in requires strict training. We must be training as a church in corporate prayer. That means pray together. Bible studies, fellowship, admonishment, teaching, encouragement, and out of this, we become equipped to win souls to Christ. The church will grow. And to temperance, we are to add patience. <clears throat> what Peter has in mind here is a cheerful, hopeful endurance as we wait on God. Now, someday, I would like to prepare a lesson just on this topic, but this morning, I have a poem that I want to read you <clears throat> by Russell Kelfer. It's called Wait. Desperately, helplessly, longingly, I cried. Quietly, patiently, lovingly, he replied. I pleaded and I wept for a clue to my fate, and the master so gently said, Child, you must wait. Wait, you say, wait, my indignant reply. Lord, I need answers. I need to know why. Is your hand shortened or have you not heard? By faith I have asked and I'm claiming your word. My future and all to which I can relate hangs in the balance and you tell me, wait? I need a yes, a go-ahead sign, or even a no to which I can resign. And Lord, you have promised that if we believe, we need but ask, and we shall receive. And Lord, I've been asking, and this is my cry, I'm weary of asking. I need a reply. And quietly, softly, I learned of my fate as my master replied once again, you must wait. So I slumped in my chair. Defeated and taught and grumbled to God. So I'm waiting. For what? He seemed then to kneel, and his eyes met with mine, and he tenderly said, I could give you a sign. I could shake the heavens, darken the sun, raise the dead, cause the mountains to run. All you see I could give, and pleased you would be. You would have what you want, but you wouldn't know me. You'd not know the depth of my love for each saint. You'd not know the power that I give to the faint. You'd not learn to see through clouds of despair. You'd not learn to trust just by knowing I'm there. You'd not know the joy of resting in me when darkness and silence was all you could see. You would never experience that fullness of love as the peace of my spirit descends like a dove. You would know that I give and I save for a start, but you'd not know the depth of the beat of my heart. The glow of my comfort late in the night, the faith that I give when you walk without sight, the depth that's beyond getting just what you ask from an infinite God who makes what you have last. And you never would know, should your pain quickly flee, what it means, my grace is sufficient for thee. Yes, your dreams for that loved one or not could come true, but the loss, if you lost what I'm doing in you. So be silent, my child, and in time you will see that the greatest of gifts is to get to know me. And though all my answers seem terribly late, my most precious answer of all is still wait. Oh, if only we could wait on the Lord. <clears throat> God is never early. 
He is never late. He is always right on time. Peter tells us we must exercise this kind of patience because there is a lesson in it. We must exercise this kind of patience because there is a help in it. We must exercise this kind of patience because there is encouragement in it. We must exercise this kind of patience because there is a blessing in it. We must exercise this kind of patience or we will miss God in our lives, in this church, and by extension in the people of this world. And to patience, we are to add godliness. This word means holiness, and holiness means separateness. We must be holy as God is holy. Are we separate from this world, or are we carnal? The Bible says no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Matthew 6, 24. You know, this is a real challenge. We must be separate from the world while we remain on this world. It's a battle every day to be holy. And in that battle, consider this. Christians are given spiritual armor, not camouflage. You know, in today's military, camouflage is synonymous with armor because it allows you to blend in and hide from the enemy, sneak attacks and whatnot. But we're not called to hide and blend in, are we? We are to stand out, stand up, and stand firm for Christ. That is godliness. We're not chameleons who has a defense mechanism, freeze in place, not moving, blending in so that we're safe and we avoid notice. That's not what we're called to do. We are to be seen as godly Christians. And we can do just that if we practice the virtue that we previously mentioned, that bravery, that firmness, that courage. Peter expounds on this thought in another passage of Scripture. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Are we peculiar? Do we stand out as something foreign, something strange in this world? If someone walked in this doorway and they just found more of the same of the world in here, we would not bear fruit. Souls coming to Christ as a result of our peculiarity, that is the fruit of godliness. And if we don't see that, we are not fruitful. Add to godliness brotherly kindness. We're here talking about brotherly love and fraternal affection. That is the affection felt between blood brothers. Here's some things quickly the Bible has to say about brotherly love. Psalms 133 verse 1. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loveth at all times and a brother is born for adversity, your adversity. 
John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Romans 15, 1 through 2. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. I could go on and on because the reality is this is what our time here is all about. Ephesians 4.32 And be ye kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. We have been forgiven and loved during a time when we were most unlovable. I'd like you to think back to a time in your life when you felt least worthy. When you believe you were most unlovable. Think about the time when you deserved to be shunned by everyone around you, including your loved ones. Think on that. Put it in your head. Now realize, if you could remove Christ, you would still be that person. There is no one here Whoever comes to a point where they deserve Christ's sacrifice or love. There's not a person here who ever comes to a point where God views you as acceptable due to your self-improvement and righteousness. Someone says, well, I disagree. I believe that when I accept Christ, I'm a new creature and I'm not that old man. Well, that is true. You are a new creature. You are a new man or woman, but you are not that as a result of your efforts. You are a new creation only because of Christ. You didn't deserve it then and you don't deserve it now, just like the rest of us, just like every person in the world. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. You cannot earn it. That's what makes Christ's love so phenomenal, so exceptional. That's why we say we love him because he first loved us. Your history did not change when you accepted Christ. Your future did. The fact that you needed Christ to save you because you couldn't save yourself hasn't changed. In fact, the Bible says, we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. I want you to go home and study what filthy rags is in this scripture. I'm not going to discuss it this morning, but I want you to see how God worded this, what he was referring to, and just how repugnant our sin makes us. Go home and study that. You might be surprised. Does this mean that righteous acts are worthless? No. We are supposed to be holy and righteous, remember? However, it does mean that our righteousness is not what God views and approves of. It is only when we are viewed through Christ's blood that we are justified in His sight. To be justified means that you are placed, you're picked up and placed into a position of righteousness. Didn't change, nothing about you changed. You're sinful here, 
You didn't do anything to change. You were just moved. That's justification. We are proclaimed or called righteous based on what someone else did, Christ. And it is precisely because of this fact that we can say we are loved when we do not deserve it. And God keeps on loving us because of Christ, even when we don't deserve it. So that is why we should love one another. We're not called to practice a dutiful, limited love, but a fraternal love bound up in the blood of Christ just as two brothers are bound in a special, enduring love toward each other because of the blood bond they share. You've heard it said, blood is thicker than water. That's a medieval proverb in English that means family bonds will always be stronger than the bonds of friendship or love. And that brotherly love is what we're called to have toward one another. We choose our friends, we don't choose our family. We love them because we are of them. We love each other because we are all from the same predicament. We're rescued from it. We are family. Let us love one another in this way. Brothers and sisters who share the blood of Christ in our spiritual veins. We are family bound by blood, by the blood of our firstborn brother, Jesus Christ and the family of God. Amen. That's a whole different kind of love than what you would offer to even your dearest friend. Think on that. Pray on that. Live by that. And to brotherly kindness, we are to add charity. Without charity, godliness, external worship, or profession of religion is just a vain show. Charity, agape love, is the type of love Jesus initially asked Peter if he had for him in that first passage we read. And Peter could not bring himself to say he loved Christ in that way because he knew in his heart that his denial of Christ showed that he had not yet attained that level of love. He had phileo love for Christ, warm feeling love, but not agape love. Charity, agape love, is both the evidence of regeneration in our hearts and of the truth and power of real godliness. You ever want to know, is my faith real? Or am I just going through the motions? Charity is the penultimate way to tell if your faith is sincere. If you don't have it, it's not. Because that comes from Christ. It comes from the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Charity extends beyond the church. Beyond those who earn our love. Beyond those seeking our love. Beyond those accepting of us and our love. To the oftentimes unlovable lost of this world. You know, in doing some research on charity, I found that agape love is basically to be understood as a feast of charity set out for all who will come. Picture this. It's a buffet of the finest spiritual offerings and foods. Not just what we can or are willing to spare. The best. Old orphanages thought that orphans didn't deserve much and certainly nothing good. So they were fed a watery, sometimes uncooked type of porridge called gruel. 
And that was also the staple food of peasants, the lowest, most looked down upon class, typically. The upper class, meanwhile, enjoyed the very best meats. We aren't setting out a feast of gruel, are we? If no one is feasting on what we are setting out on the table, then perhaps we are not giving our best. Because I know one thing. When I saw the table of Christ and the richness of what he offered me, my mouth began to water and I couldn't do anything but take a taste. Do you think that the rest of the world wouldn't have that same response if we offered them that? Psalms 34 verse 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. When a Christian lays out a feast, you'll want to be there. Because it is the richest food available from the seat of honor at the table of Jesus Christ. We aren't talking just about food, although a meal is certainly a form of charity. We are talking about every interaction you have with others. Give the best of your time, the best of your personality, the best of your support physically and spiritually, the best of your resources, the best of yourself. Give your best to others. And remember two things. First, your best is first and foremost always the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are not sharing that, if I am not sharing that, we are starving people in need. Second, you give your best because it doesn't belong to you. It doesn't originate from you. It isn't sustained by you. Your best, my best, is given by, sustained by, our loving Gracious, charitable, heavenly Father in heaven. It's His. What are you clutching it so tightly for? It doesn't belong to you. It's given freely to everyone. And He gives it to us and says, I want you to go give this to that person that needs it over there. What will we say someday when we face God and we still got it clutched in our fist from when he placed it there. We can't allow that to happen. We cannot allow that to happen. Share the gospel to everyone, everywhere, all the time, and especially to those people who push back the most. The more they say, I don't want to hear it and I hate you, the more you agape love them and you keep on sharing. James 1.17 Every good and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Beloved, when we have agape love, we believe truly that it's better to give than to receive. And we give our best because we want to show the world something about the character and goodness of Christ. We are his ambassadors. We don't give something that we don't want anymore. We give the thing that is most precious to us. When Jesus turned the water to wine at Cana, you'll recall that the ruler of the feast tasted that wine and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. And when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou 
has kept the good wine until now. If you investigate this statement, you'll find that in those days a wedding feast was a very big and expensive ordeal. And as guests drank wine and the effects of the wine took hold, they were unable to distinguish any longer whether the wine was of high quality or not. And so a host could save money and not waste that expensive wine on people who were too inebriated to even notice or care anymore. But Jesus did not do this. He offered the best he could. And you know what? The ruler of the feast noticed. When we give the very best of what God has given us to the world, they will notice. What's more, they will be stunned by it. After this miracle of Jesus, he was the talk of the town. This was Jesus' very first miracle, and it said something about him. It displayed his character, his ethics, and ultimately his agape love for others. Peter tells us to give in this way. Give of our best. And as a result, we will bear more fruit than we could ever imagine. We will grow as a church and be sustained and never fall. So let's tie all this together in the conclusion. There are seven things that Peter tells the church we must do to bear fruit. They are virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. These seven things represent a complete package for church growth and fruitfulness. Peter learned these things and why they were important from the feet of Jesus Christ himself. And it matters because in this way we make our calling and election sure. Indeed, if we incorporate the pursuit of these seven traits into our church, we will never fall. Never fall. So, are you bearing fruit? Are we in this body bearing fruit? Is there an abundance of fruit? Is God waiting to prune and fertilize us to produce even more fruit? I think you'll find the answer is always yes. Always yes. This body's been brought together against all odds from all over the world, from different phases of life, with different talents, different weaknesses, but a powerful zeal and love for God and one another. Let us look to God to grow in these seven virtues because it's the very food that Peter felt lead to feed Jesus' sheep, you and I. This is how he saw fit to fulfill Jesus' commission. And we should take that to heart and begin feeding others and ourselves with the same food. If you're here and you wish to obey the gospel today, or if you're seeking the prayers of the church we would love to pray with you. If there be one of either case, please come forward as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.